0: Touch with technology with tech stuff from howstuffworks.com.
1: Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland, and now today I'm joined in the podcast studio. By my esteemed colleague, the co-host of Car Stuff, Scott Benjamin. Scott, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and Scott, uh you you this is your first time on Tech Stuff. It is first guest by, yes. Yeah, Ben's been on several times. Uh he spoke highly of you. Thank you. So I, I have I have high expectations. Uh if you guys have not listened to Car Stuff, you definitely need to go and check that out. I know I've recommended it multiple times. When we did our transmissions episode. I was silently hoping that, uh, Scott was not sitting at his desk cringing in horror just from psychically understanding that we were completely misstating how they worked. Ah,
0: shucks. You're just saying that. I, uh, I probably couldn't poke too many holes in the, uh, in the narrative.
1: Yeah. We were, we were, I think pretty consistent, uh, and, and more correct than not. So that was good. Uh, <laughs> that's good. And I, you know, we kind of were talking about what was going to be the subject. You know, I said, well, we could pick any topic you want Mm -hmm. and we talked about autonomous cars being the subject the idea of uh you know the whole history of autonomous cars the technology that more or less is allowing autonomous cars to work and how that technology is finding its way into cars you can drive today and not not autonomous cars not driverless cars but that technology is making the cars we do use either easier or more safe Mm -hmm. and so I thought I'd start off by saying, Scott, the first autonomous car story I could come up with was from 1478.
0: Yeah, that goes way farther back than I had anticipated, <laughs> although once you said it, I remembered what you're talking yeah, about.
1: Yeah, I mean, right? as soon as I said it, I thought I was really going to – I said it before we came in here, and I thought I was going to really catch you off guard. And you said oh, Leonardo da Vinci. Dang, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, he, he He sketched out an idea for a driverless cart. You're not going to stump me on Leo too often because uh, we talked about Leo so many times in the early days of car stuff. Yeah. I think we've talked about just about every invention the guy's ever had, which, again, maybe not because, uh, you know, he's got he thousands, it seems like he know, was, patents for thousands of things. Not patents, but uh, ideas for yeah, thousands of things, right? Tons
1: of sketches, some of which uh, were ideas that ultimately had no way of working and right. a lot of which had, you know, some real, some real great thought behind it. Uh, and this is one of them. It was a a pre-programmed clockwork cart. So it's not autonomous in the sense that it could uh, you could set it down on a road and it would just be able to follow the road. It would follow a predetermined pathway, and it did so. It had a had a cam that you could put cam stops on, which would tell it tell essentially the steering mechanism when to turn left or right mm-hmm. uh, along its uh, pathway and a, a spring that you would wind inside the cart gave it the, the, the energy needed to propel itself forward. A
0: powered wagon.
1: Yeah. And, uh, so if you knew that I needed to travel forward approximately this far, cause approximately is as good as you're going to get and then turn left, you could put the cam stop in the right spot and then it would do that. But. It, that's it. It would have to be the predetermined path.
0: And now is this the one you got to refresh my memory? Yeah. I, I don't think that this was ever built in his time. I uh, believe that some engineers created it later for a museum piece. Is that right? That's right. The, uh, the original one
1: was probably never built in Leo- Leonardo's time, which is not a big surprise. A lot of his inventions uh, were, again, just the realm of the sketchbook. They were never actually built. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, it was Mark Rossheim who made a working model of it. He also made, uh, I did an episode with Josh Clark about humanoid robots. Mm. He also made a um, clockwork mechanical knight based on Leonardo da Vinci's design, which supposedly was built during da Vinci's time, but we just have a written account of it existing as opposed to an actual example of it. So it may that that story may be apocryphal, but the actual design worked. Interesting. So yeah. uh,
0: it's fascinating that it would work. You know, these uh, these drawings of his that finally came to life, you know, hundreds of years later. Right. And and they truly do work. It's amazing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, we have the story from, I believe, 1925, you said about a radio controlled full size car, not not a not a radio controlled car like a toy car. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a full size car being controlled by radio that is amazing to me now granted that's teleoperated yeah. right again it's not autonomously controlled correct so uh, a little different from a car that drives itself
0: a little bit different yeah i guess so um you know you said that it would be controlled by someone outside the vehicle i guess it's uh, you could consider it the earliest remote controlled or radio controlled Full size car, yeah, ever, and it was tested in a very difficult situation too. It was New York City. Oh wow! During a traffic jam, so we're talking about driving up Broadway and down Fifth Avenue in heavy traffic in 1925. You can imagine what that was like. Wow! And uh, that's a pretty you know rigorous first test. Yeah, I mean, amazing to think that you know they were doing this in 1925. I mean, but again, look what we're look where we're at now. Yeah, yeah.
1: So 1935, we get science fiction author David H. Keller, who wrote a story called The Living Machine, uh, in the anthology Wonder Stories. Keller's story involved, uh, lots of different things, but it had a description of driverless cars that took all the stress out of the commute. Mm-hmm. You just jumped in, you put the kiddies into the, into the car. It would take them to school and you wouldn't have to worry about, you know, a chauffeur making a wrong turn. Sounds nice. It, it did mention a chauffeur, which I thought was, uh, meant that this story must have been for a very specific audience. But uh, uh in 1939, we have the infamous World's Fair. This this is a World's Fair I wish I could travel back in time and visit myself.
0: You're talking about GM's Futurama exhibit, right? This is amazing.
1: Yes, that is exactly what I'm talking about. But this particular World's Fair had tons of science fictiony kind of ideas, as most of the World's Fairs did. Mm-hmm. But the ones that this one... Uh, had really excite me because there was everything from robots to the, these, this idea of the smart highway system in the Futurama presentation. And I actually watched the film that was shown, uh, back at the 1939, uh, World's Fair. And, um, it's pretty interesting their approach. You know, they, they foresaw a smart highway system in place by 1960.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's what they were predicting in 1939.
0: Yeah, and GM has been on this uh, this bandwagon for a long, long time. I mean, probably prior to 1939. To yeah. be honest with you, I mean, the development of that system alone. I and mean, this was the one that showed, showcased electric cars that were powered by circuits that were embedded in the roadway. Yeah. So this is a uh, an infrastructure system, as as we'll talk about in this episode. But um, this was also a radio controlled system.
1: Yeah. And they had uh, their their highways were like trenches. So you would have a lane that was essentially a trench. You could not change lanes Mm. because you had these barriers on either side.
0: Individual lanes were trenches.
1: Yeah. And the idea was that you would you would get there would be open spots where you would get into the correct lane, depending upon what your destination is. Mm. But otherwise, you stay on target. In the Death Star lane. And uh, it also had radio uh, communication between vehicles to make sure that the vehicles were maintaining the proper distance from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ideas were incredible. Now, most of this was infrastructure that was built into the road system itself. Mm-hmm. So we're talking smart roads, smart highways, and uh, we're not talking so much about smart cars, Right the cars themselves didn't have as much of that technology built into them because the the thinking at the time, was that this is a system that's going to require an infrastructure to support
0: it. It's going to be an external system that operates the vehicles that, that operate within that system. Yes. So I got, I got it. And the cars have to be able to read the system, communicate with the system that's right. outside the vehicle. I got it. I've got a lot to say about that in a little while. Because <laughs> um, uh, there's some interesting things that happened, uh, mid 1990s or so. Yeah. Yeah. That's where,
1: uh, some, some big thinking started to kind of mm-hmm. shift from this because this was the predominant approach for the idea of a, a driverless system or at least uh, an automated car system was that you would have the the. The largest part of the system built into the landscape, not into
0: the vehicle. The vehicle would be a receiver and the landscape would be the transmitter. And it makes sense, I guess, when you think about the size of the, uh, I guess, for lack of a better way to say this, you can correct me on this, yeah. but the electronics that are required. Yeah. The cars simply couldn't handle something right. that big.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> for a very long time, the, the technology that would allow a vehicle to be uh, autonomous was so huge that you couldn't put it in a commercial
0: vehicle in a moving vehicle. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: you needed to have it as uh, something that was along the side. Yeah. With the transistor wasn't even developed till the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a time where you're looking at electromechanical circuitry, vacuum tubes, actual moving parts to complete circuits. Uh that is enormous and you would not be able to fit that in. It would make a vehicle so heavy as to make it impractical.
0: And it's so, so different now because they're actually, you know, those components are actually saving weight in vehicles over the versions of the technology that we used prior to that. Yeah. You know, the mechanical versions. Yep. So uh, it's just amazing the way this thing is advanced.
1: Yeah. And like I said, you know, all the way through the 1950s, there was still the look at the the smart highway system. In fact, there were companies that worked on technology that would have brought this into reality, even as early as the late 1950s, if we had chosen to pursue it. But Mm -hmm. that kind of uh, system requires massive buy-in across multiple companies. And no company really wants to hand over the keys to their kingdom to some other standard. Mm -hmm. So you don't want – if I'm developing cars and I know that my competitor is also developing cars and is proposing this highway system that my cars are going to have to conform to – I'm not going to be really crazy about that system. We see this in technology everywhere, not just in cars, but every kind of technology. If uh, I want to have an interconnected kitchen where my refrigerator talks to my stove, I have to get them from the same manufacturer because no one wants to build their stuff to work with other people's stuff. Mm -hmm. It means you can't sell more of your things. So we never saw this smart road, smart highway system take off the way – the visionaries back in the late 30s were imagining it just never
0: happened. And they always seem to promise that, you know, in 25 years, we're going to see this as the standard. This is the way yeah. it's going to be, or in 20 years sometimes. Yeah. And even now, you know, even now when we see the autonomous cars that um, Audi's rolling out and yeah. other companies, they're still saying it's a decade away, it's yep. 15 years away. And it's always been the case. It's been the, uh, the case ever since, you know, the 1930s.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's all, well, I mean, that's, that's kind of like a running joke in 20 to 50 years or in 10 to 15 years. Uh, and then you look at the people who are, are, are suggesting whatever the technology is. It'll be here in 10 to 15 years and you go back five years and those people are saying it'll be 10 to 15 years and you go back another. Eventually, you get to a point where you realize it's always 10 to 15 years mm-hmm. away and you wonder if that 10 to if that's just if that tomorrow is always going to be tomorrow and never today. Um, but we're along the way, we're seeing some really cool developments uh, in the 60s. We had labs at Stanford and other facilities begin to work on robot controlled vehicles, uh, which weren't cars. They were vehicles meant to go into space like space probes. But these robot controlled vehicles that were meant to allow a, a probe to continue on a pathway and make corrections on its own, because, you know, the further away you get from Earth, the longer it takes for information to pass between the probe and Earth. Information can only go so fast as the speed of light. And eventually those probes go far enough where that becomes a factor. Then you had to have a system that can make minor corrections on its own rather than have to relay the problem back. Then you have to do all the math. All right, well, we have to fix the problem not for right now, but for 45 minutes from now, because that's when the probe will get our response. <laughs> and oh, It's just it's too complicated. That's too much math. Yeah. No, no one wants to do that much. No. Especially when all you have to rely on are slide rules. Uh, so then we see that kind of technology start to filter into other areas. And uh, that's when we started to really think about what are the elements that are necessary to let a car navigate autonomously. This involves sensing the environment. So it has to be able to detect where it is in relation to the road, to other vehicles, to other possible obstacles, whether that's people or animals or whatever it might be. Uh, It has to be able to process the information that it receives so that it has a way of making sense of all that data. Just just picking up the data isn't enough, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be able to say, what does this data mean? And then it has to react to it. Has to have a way of responding to that information.
0: Ah, that's critical because what's going to react to it? Is it going to be the driver? Or is it going to be the system itself? I mean, right. is it going to just alert you with a, a noise or a light? Yeah, or is it something that uh, is going to take control and do it itself? Exactly. And uh, and there we've seen lots of different approaches with that.
1: Sometimes uh, you know you could argue that the progress has mostly been. Uh, going from the most simple implementation to the more complicated implementations that have become possible as technology has improved. But sometimes it's just you don't not everyone wants a car that starts to respond on its own because they start to feel like they're no longer in control of their own vehicle, mm-hmm. which for some people is a real issue. Uh, in the 1980s, there was a, a guy named Ernst Dickmans who created an autonomous driving system using a Mercedes van uh, called the uh, vamors
0: mercedes van have you heard of this uh it's the uh vision guided systems yeah right? yeah
1: yeah this this was a really incredible uh thing to look at so it's it was a van that had an enormous amount of electronic equipment inside it and again this is we're talking about the the 1980s this is a, a vehicle that could autonomously navigate down highway
0: systems yeah they called this a robotic van
1: yeah and in fact three different generations of robotics, went through this one van. They do a system, they gut the system, they would rebuild it and do a second generation. They did it again for a third generation. And it could do things like uh, maintain its distance from the vehicle that's ahead of it. Uh, it could maintain its position in a lane. It could maintain its speed. And uh, it was really uh, a groundbreaking approach that and a lot of the technology and um, and processes that were used in that have filtered into the autonomous cars we are talking about today.
0: Sure. This is the beginning of uh, what we call um, adaptive cruise control. Yes. Yeah. We'll talk about
1: that a little bit more later, too. So super cool. Uh, and there are videos online of this. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the Vamors Mercedes V A M O R S. Uh, and you can actually see this thing like cruising down the road with the guy sitting in the back of the van looking at the electronics that again are just taking up shelves of space in the van so unless you happen to have a van with lots of shelves of space that's not the Mm. best implementation but it did show the promise of the technology
0: wonder why they didn't do it with their two-seat sports (laughs) car
1: yeah yeah just carrying behind a trailer with cables connecting (laughs) to the car uh in 1993 and 94 you had the eureka project prometheus now the eureka project was out of europe um and they had three Mercedes-Benz cars with systems that allowed their cars to make autonomous lane changes, which was a first in vehicles. They could detect where the lanes were. They could detect up to six other vehicles, three in front and three behind. Essentially, the car that's directly in front of them, the car that's to the lane in the left, the car that's to the lane in the right, and then the ones that are behind them as well. And if all the parameters were right, if none of those cars were too close or were moving uh, laterally across lanes... Then it can make an autonomous lane change on its
0: own, which was a big deal. That's still a big deal now, even really. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, some of the modern vehicles that's still a, a big selling feature is uh you know lane warning detection devices, mm-hmm. right? And things like that, and uh, and um blind spot detection. Yeah. And you know that that was what they were using then, just a, a more primitive version.
1: Yes, and so now we're starting to see that specific type of technology find its way into consumer vehicles today. Uh, 2004 was when DARPA introduced the Grand Challenge. I love the DARPA Grand Challenge. Mm-hmm. It is the coolest thing to me. They invited a lot of different research institutions, colleges, even private companies to participate in this challenge. The idea was to build a vehicle that could autonomously navigate a uh, a course in the desert, the Mojave Desert, uh, and uh, it, to see if it could get from point A to point B. Uh, and they had several teams participate but no one successfully navigated the course that first year and mm-hmm. no prize was awarded that first year yeah i think I, I think one team got 11.7 kilometers in and that's the furthest anyone made it
0: i'll give you a little bit of a spoiler yeah the 2005 uh, five darpa challenge yeah. challenge uh, that plays heavily into the development of the google car
1: yes because the 2005 challenge had five teams that actually did finish including one from stanford and the people on that Stanford team, many of them went on to work for Google.
0: Yeah. In fact, uh, you know, the guy that headed the team, I guess, um, Sebastian Thrum,
1: uh-huh.
0: uh, that's the guy that, uh, he, he won the 2005 DARPA grand challenge and the two million dollar prize from the U.S. Department of Defense. Yep. But he was also the co, this is also the guy that was the co-inventor of Google Street View. Yes. So he's, he's got, you know, some uh, some engineering chaps, I guess. Yeah, he's that, got uh, you he's know. got the credentials. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So, uh, you know, we'll talk about the Google self-driving car later. I'm
1: yeah, yeah. He um he also gave a TED talk specifically about driverless cars and mm-hmm. his personal uh, motivation for developing driverless cars, which was a very personal story. As a teenager, he lost a friend in a car accident. Mm-hmm. And so he said he wanted to develop systems that could save lives. And that's really his driving motivation not to use a pun, to create uh, autonomous cars. So, uh, yeah, the 2004 and 2005 DARPA challenges kind of set the, the bar for autonomous cars in a large but uh, desert course. 2007, DARPA would up the ante with the Urban Challenge, which is where they were at an, I think it was an Air Force base. Yeah. And the cars had to navigate a simulated town environment, including merging into and out of traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember hearing about some of the cars that would do things like there was one car that just pulled itself into a parking lot and stopped. I guess it just got
0: overwhelmed. (laughs) Uh, Some of of these are funny clips to watch when you see them. Uh, It's interesting to see how they handle the situation.
1: Yeah, I think uh, two of them got into an accident with each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there were six teams that finished the course successfully. And, you know, when you think about navigating a dynamic system like that, With And they weren't told what the route was going to be ahead of time. They were told just as the challenge started. So the idea was that the car had to be able to autonomously do this. They couldn't program everything in Mm pre-challenge. It had to be able to handle these situations on its own and obey all traffic laws. So not just merge into and out of traffic, but come to a stop at intersections. Yeah,
0: be able to read signs.
1: Yeah, be able to read signs, be able to uh, react to traffic lights. Pedestrians. These are all big challenges
0: right any one of these uh, is a huge challenge from an engineering standpoint i can't remember if they use simulated pedestrians or if it was actual pedestrians because that would be a dangerous game to play to be yeah in the middle of a, the darpa urban challenge
1: i would need to have a guaranteed million dollar prize to be a
0: pedestrian <laughs> for an autonomous <laughs> car challenge a guaranteed mill that would do it huh
1: yeah well you know yeah maybe i it depends also on what if they had capped the uh
0: the speed limit that the cars were allowed to travel. If anybody's listening, I'll do it for half that price.
1: <laughs> we're
0: pricing each other out. Right. My,
1: my life and limb is worth 250000 You heard it here first. Uh, and in 2010, that's when Google revealed that they were working on a driverless car. It had mm-hmm. happened already. I had a friend at Google who was joking around that he had this huge, huge, huge thing that Google was working on. That I would just die to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he wouldn't tell me what it was. And the week when this came out, I wrote to him and I said, Was that it? And he's like, Bingo. I said, You are a jerk. Yeah. Well, he sat on it. I said, You realize, you know, that you can't ha- he, he found out he cannot have a conversation with me about his work mm-hmm. because of my work. <laughs> so uh, we now joke about that whenever we get together as you know, like, So how's your job? Sounds a little frustrating. Uh, yeah, well, he likes it because he likes to wind me up. Oh, sure. He likes to, you know, hey, man, there's this, oh, I can't talk about
0: it. I know something you don't know. Yeah,
1: even when he doesn't know anything. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's probably the, the his favorite is when he just bluffs that he knows something. But this was, um, this was a kind of a, an eye opener because not only did Google have a driverless car, but they had been, uh, testing it for quite some time Uh without anyone being aware of it. Big, big shock to most of us, right? Yeah. Big they, shock. they had logged something like 140,000 miles yeah. in driverless car road, Re- know,
0: miles. It's just crazy. Well, and relatively unnoticed.
1: Yeah. Uh, now part of the unnoticed was that they always had someone who was sitting at the wheel. Yes. Even if they didn't have control of the vehicle at that time, because if something did go wrong, they wanted the ability for a human to intervene and stop the vehicle or, or drive it off the highway or yeah, whatever
0: manual override
1: yeah i think that most of it actually was surface streets i don't mm-hmm. think they were driving on the highway too much with these in fact i think that they specifically said they limited it to surface streets either that or i've got it totally
0: mixed up and it's the other way around i'm going but... to talk about the, the google car right now you want to you want to wait until later you want to do it right now let's do it right now Scott. all right let's, let's do it it's so, an amazing vehicle it is really cool i mean it's got so many different things going on with it. I mean, yeah. these are features that we'll talk about later, I guess, but we mentioned, you know, the development of the whole thing. Um, you know, it's a Toyota Prius is the first one that we saw, yep. I believe, right? Mm-hmm. I think that they've now expanded that fleet to include um like six Toyota Prius vehicles, um, also an Audi TT. Uh-huh. And I believe they have some Lexus RX four fifty H models that mm-hmm. they're using for quote unquote Google cars because uh, they don't really make their own car. They just right. modify other manufacturers vehicles to to work this way. Right. Now the cost of this stuff is really really expensive still. Yeah. Um somewhere in the neighborhood of something like $150,000 in of equipment in each vehicle in order to make this all work.
1: And that's not even the street price of the vehicle included. That's <laughs> that's just the equipment that makes it possible for it to navigate through these these uh dynamic systems.
0: Exactly right. And that includes a $70,000 Lidar system, that's light radar. Yep. I mean, I'm sure your audience knows what this is all about. Um, but man, it's got this range finder thing that's on top. It's probably the dead giveaway that it's yeah. a Google car even. Uh, that range finder, it's a 64 beam laser that creates a 3D map of the entire surrounding environment. So, um, I think it's like, they call it inch precise yeah. in the way that it, it works. It's, it's a high definition inch precise map of the entire region that this thing is traveling through at any given time. Yeah, in
1: real time. Yeah, Yeah. the the visualization of that data is amazing. There's uh, some of that and the TED talk I mentioned where they show the and it looks almost like a heat signature map the way they show it and Mm -hmm. whether or not that was an artistic choice they made for the purposes of the TED talk, I don't know. But you could see the actual landscape of the the street in real time. Like there was the the camera angle of the car moving through and then the view of this rangefinder, including people like pedestrians walking across the street mm-hmm. so that the car knew to stop and like it was making a left turn and it would stop and allow pedestrians to continue across. The pedestrians continued to walk across, which belied a casual approach to this to the level that I'm pretty sure they were plants mm-hmm. because as in not, not like plants as in the life form, but rather they had been planted there by Google. Because whenever I've crossed the street and a car is turning left and is about to collide with me, I have a reaction. And these people did not. <laughs> uh, okay, so almost
0: like shills.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> In a way, I guess, right? Yeah. Now, I want to say, you know, this ties into this. And this is kind of the last thing i got about the Google car, really. Right. Because uh, I'd like to get to the technology of it. Um yeah. But there have been two incidents, I suppose, with Google cars. Yes. And the interesting thing about both of these inc- incidents, it's not the fault of the system. These are human errors. Yeah. I wasn't,
1: I think one of them might have been a human error of the person who was operating the Google car. They, they, they had taken manual control. Correct. And then the other one was, uh, Google car got rear-ended.
0: Yeah, exactly. By another driver. Exactly. So, uh, you know, there should be zero bad press about the uh, Google cars being in an accident. Yeah,
1: you're talking about more than 140,000 miles logged and only two incidents. And neither of them were due to the autonomous part. So, so none of them, none of the 140,000 miles had an accident associated with them. Just the miles of the human operation did. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, this thing is, uh, it's only uh, authorized, I guess, to operate in, what is it, four states right yeah, now, right? Yeah, I know and that California and Nevada. California, Nevada, um, Michigan, and Florida, and then I believe the District of Columbia has recently signed yes. on as well.
1: And Georgia might be nope. soon, okay. according to uh, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which sent out a tweet the other day saying, Georgia might pave the way for driverless cars. Oh. And I thought, yay. But we'll get into personal feelings at well, the end of this episode. <laughs>
0: pave the way. We'll be the fifth state to uh, jump on the bandwagon. Well, really. I mean, pave
1: the way for the, for people in Georgia for driverless cars, I guess. Understood. But, uh, uh, yeah, the one thing that is cool is Google is working on prototype cars for autonomous driving, their own cars. These look like tiny little smart cars. Have mm-hmm. you seen these?
0: I have, yes. They,
1: they're, they're nifty looking devices, but they are really, I mean, when I, we say prototype, we really mean it. This is like a proof of concept kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they only have a top speed of 25 miles per hour. Google capped it at that. Yeah. They need, and, uh,
0: they need some development there.
1: Yeah. It's mostly, I think, to again, test the system out. And they don't have a steering wheel. They don't have an accelerator. They don't have a brake. There are no manual controls.
0: And it's so weird, isn't it? I yeah. mean, that, that is not a car. Yeah. From the, uh, the classic viewpoint of what a car should be.
1: Right. right. Yeah. There's no way for you to <laughs> intervene. You have to take full, like faith that the system's going to take care of you. You know what? This is something just off
0: the top of my head here. I was was thinking that, you know, recently I heard somebody say something like, um, you know, cars have only advanced, well, really, I, I guess maybe it's more to say, Cars have not advanced enough that if Henry Ford were to come back now from the grave, yeah, he would look at a car and say, "That's a car, and yeah. that's that's my invention that's been adapted." Right? There hasn't been a major dramatic shift in the way that cars have been built, right? Since cars have been built, right, right. And and this is one when you look at something that has no steering wheel, no right. uh, no no um, accelerator, no brakes, no anything like that. He might look at that and say like, I don't know what this is How, really.
1: Yeah. How do you hook it up to another horse? Have is, we gone back to horse drawn carriages? What's it,
0: up with Is this? this a woodshed on wheels? Yeah. What, what's going on? You, yeah. must, you must haul stuff in that, right?
1: Yeah. This must only go downhill, yeah. <laughs> which would be very useful in some parts of San Francisco, but and you only still can't one way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You just, you just have to hope that whichever way you're hurtling down the hill, you're clear of any obstacles. Hmm. Um, when I went to CES and 2014, which the year that we're recording this, I also saw, uh, Audi and BMW showing off driverless car technology. Uh, again, this is, this is stuff where the companies weren't, um, committing to saying that they were going to produce a driverless car, but rather that they were developing the technology to make driving safer for everybody. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like saying, look at all the technology we've developed that makes these cars safe. We've incorporated all of them into this one vehicle, and it's so sophisticated that the vehicle can drive itself. That was kind of the way they were presenting it. Not that the cars that you buy from us in five years or ten years are going to be uh, automated and you just hit a little switch and you go to where you want to go, but rather this is how safe we are, uh, which is an interesting way of, of taking it. In fact, that's the way a lot of auto manufacturers are approaching this, not to say we're building driverless cars, but rather we're, we're building incredibly safe cars. Mm-hmm. Now in 2016, which uh, I know is in the future, for those of you who are listening, you know, and when, when we're recording this is in 2014, uh, but that's when Cadillac is supposedly going to come out with a car that could be, uh, completely automated if you wanted to, at least in certain situations, uh, in their 2017 line of vehicles, which would have the super cruise feature. I like
0: that name. I do too. Super cruise system.
1: Yeah. And that, uh, from what I understand, you would initiate the super cruise system in specific scenarios. Mm-hmm. Like if you were in stop and go highway traffic and, you know, it's mindless. You, you're, you're, you come to a stop, you wait what seems to be an eternity. This is a familiar story for anyone who drives in Atlanta on any of the highways during rush hour. Certainly. And then you wait and then there's a four foot gap. That opens between you and the car in front. So you creep forward and then
0: you stop again. Oh, more than likely, another car jams itself into that four foot gap.
1: Right. If you have not acted, then that certainly has happened. (laughs) So this would be a system you would activate in those kind of situations to sort of take over the monotony of that of that
0: situation. Can I tell you how I've, I've heard it described. And now the super cruise system is relatively new. They've been talking about it for about a year now. Yeah. Uh, but they've recently had a, you know, there's a press release that came out and said, we're likely to put this on a vehicle in, was it 2017? Yeah. And they'll release it in 2016 on a 2017 model. And it's likely to be on a Cadillac. Wow. That's, that's probably what it's going to be. So you'll see it written as a Cadillac super cruise system, but it's really just GM super cruise. System. Right. Right. All right. So the way they describe it is that it's a full speed, Range adaptive cruise control and lane centering system that uses cameras and other sensors to automatically steer and brake in highway driving situations. That's how they kind of lay it out in, uh, in not so much legal terms, but layman's terms. I right. guess, right? right. Now I want to make note here also that Mercedes-Benz has had a similar system for a long time. You mm-hmm. know, they've had something that they call, um, Distronic plus. Now, that's a weird. Wow. Name. Distronic.
1: Well, come on, Scott. You. You can be honest here. A lot of the words we come up with in the automotive industry don't really mean
0: anything. I know. I know. It's just their own uh, brand name, I guess, for the same type of system. But they've had it for a few years, and it's been on the S and E class models. And the one difference here, and this is where um, the, the legal stuff comes in, right? Yeah. Mercedes has required drivers to have their hands on the wheel even when the system is operational. Mm-hmm. Now, that's how they get around saying that this is an autonomous car. Now, GM calls it semi-automated driving. Yeah. And they're not going to say autonomous. They're not going to say that it's a self-driving system. They're mm-hmm. never going to say that. Right. For now. They're going right. to leave it at this uh the semi-automated. And they're going to say that yeah, sure, the drivers have to be in the driver's seat. They have to be paying attention. They have to be awake. Right. Which is weird to say, but they have to be awake. Yeah, you can't have your feet propped up on the dashboard. Mm-hmm. You have to be at the ready. Yeah. And uh, and likely they're going to say that you're going to have to have your hands on the wheel just as Mercedes does, because, again, it comes down to legal issues.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, we just you know, you were mentioning just now that there are only a few states that even allow autonomous cars on the road. So if you if you call your car that, then you have just limited where your car can be driven legally. Mm -hmm. But if you call it semi autonomous and you you stress the fact that there's no point where you can take your hands off the wheel. Uh, legally with this vehicle that you have to be in control or at least ha- be able to be in control at any given time, then I think
0: you kind of dance around that little legal issue and your car can suddenly be sold in all the different states. Ah, uh, But you know what? The truth is, and I've seen this written a few different places, that most of us, if we're driving relatively new vehicles, I mean, mm-hmm. within the last few years, even mm-hmm. uh, most of us are probably driving what can be considered an almost autonomous car right now
1: that's incredible. I
0: know it's strange to think about it, but think if you think about the technologies that are involved, I mean yeah. you get blind spot detection, yeah. lane change departure, yeah. backup cameras, uh, sensors that go along with that, cross traffic alerts, active cruise control, uh the, you know, all these systems, the uh the ABS systems that are electronic. You've yeah. got um uh, electronic speed controls, you've got um stability control systems. All that plays into yeah. what creates um This this bigger package that would be an autonomous vehicle. Mm-hmm. Those are the puzzle pieces that are required to be in place before they can call it autonomous or allow it to all work together to be autonomous. So, yeah. So most of us have systems like that. We've got the pieces there. It's like you're halfway there. Mm-hmm. They're just not connected in the exact right way that they need to be. They're right. connected. Sure. And they they work together flawlessly, really. But there's just that missing piece of the puzzle, and that's when you give over control to the system. You right. Give, you give the control over to the computers and, and step back and let it happen.
1: And we're seeing tiny little incremental steps toward that, although uh, they tend to be implemented in a way where control is still ultimately left up to the driver, where the driver can override anything that's been, uh crea- you know, decided, quote unquote, decided by the vehicle. Mm-hmm. So here's some examples like adaptive cruise control we've mentioned so to really explain what that is first cruise control as a concept is is an old idea i mean even if you go back to the earliest cars a lot of them had governors that Mm -hmm. allowed them to maintain a steady rate of speed even if they were going uphill or downhill yeah we're talking even pre-1910 yeah as early as that this was something that was important because otherwise you know you would hit a hill and suddenly your engine has to do more work, mm-hmm. right? And so now you're going to have to start really pressing down on the, on the accelerator in order to get this car to continue up the hill, especially if you want to maintain the speed that you were at when you were on a level plane. Sure. Seems logical. Then you get to the peak of the hill. Now it's time to go down the hill. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly your car is careening out of control. I mean, you have to have the systems in place to help maintain that level of speed. Cruise control itself. Uh, there was an early system
0: called speedostat, which was invented in 1948. Uh, but uh then and, and that one didn't really show up until about 1958 on yeah. a Chrysler Imperial. So, you know, it was a decade away. So yeah. you remember, we were talking about this. You'll see this in 10 years. Right. That's one case where it did come true.
1: Yeah. And it, I would say that I think the thing that really pushed cruise control into fleets of vehicles was I mean, that really made it a standard was the gas crisis in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Was this idea that suddenly fuel economy was really important. It hadn't been as important before. Mm -hmm. I mean, no one wants to waste money, but now when for the, a lot of our listeners are are younger, but in the seventies, there was a gas crisis that meant that there were, there would be enormous lines at gas stations in order to get, uh, just a little bit of gas. And that, you know, it was, it was a really serious tough time well
0: when you get right down to it that's why the epa was formed right and that's why we have a lot of the uh the regulated or mandated materials or materials with the electronics i guess uh that are required in cars that that are driving the prices up well can we talk about that later yeah we absolutely can okay but that's uh that's really the start of the epa and the uh, national um you know traffic, highway traffic safety administration, yep. all mm-hmm. the, uh, all the government bureaus that say you have to have this safety device, this, uh, this electronic control device in your vehicle. A lot you have of to it, have
1: onboard diagnostics in order to, uh, to maintain emissions. Um, you know, yeah, you have sure. to be able to, to, to measure that and make yeah. sure that you're within the right, the,
0: uh, allowed range. Sure. Emissions in yeah. the environment are a big part of this whole thing. So yeah. let's, uh, let's talk about that later. Not sure. That, but, uh, but let's move on to adaptive cruise control because that's a, a natural extension of this 1958, uh, modern cruise control that we saw in, yeah. in the Chrysler car.
1: Yeah. The idea of setting your speed. So let's say that, uh, let's say I'm driving down uh, a, a highway in Atlanta. So I'm going the average speed, which is somewhere around, I don't know, 87 miles per hour. That's mm, what it feels like.
0: 97.
1: Okay. That's fair. Uh yeah no Atlanta is pretty crazy. So you've got your your speed set, you set your cruise control. Now with regular cruise control that just means that's going to maintain that speed until you depress either the accelerator or the brake and then it uh puts it back into manual control and then you're you can choose whatever speed you want. Mm-hmm. Uh adaptive cruise control the way it works is it has that that speed you've set as the ideal, right? That's the speed you would like to go assuming that the world allows you to do so. Mm -hmm. But let's say you start to overtake the car in front of you. Now, adaptive cruise control, as I understand it, please correct me if I'm wrong, means you have a system where it's able to identify if there is a vehicle traveling in front of you and you're about to overtake it and uh, it will automatically decrease your speed so that you are traveling at the same speed as the car in front of you. And if that car speeds up and you're still below your, your set speed for your cruise control,
0: it will then start to accelerate till you hit that speed again. Correct. You you dial in a distance that you're comfortable with. Yeah, and that's how it works. I mean, it it keeps a, a distance. There's never a uh, there's never something that encroaches on that distance more than than what you've already said. If it mm-hmm. does, that's when it begins to brake, and it breaks accordingly, you know, with the vehicle in front of you. Right. Uh, you can't do anything about the person behind you. Right. That's, uh, that's something as we'll find, you know, there's really not a whole lot you can do about that. That's the kind of wild card here. Yeah. Um, however, you know, you can you can or your vehicle can adjust for that vehicle in front of you just based on this. I mean, it's a radar system. It mm-hmm. uh, uses the lasers in some cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's a camera system. I think Subaru uses a camera system. So
1: it's actually relying on optical data. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh,
0: that's what's going on there. And I think there's probably other manufacturers that use camera systems as well. Subaru is just a good example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a it's a fascinating thing and um maybe I'll stump you with this one. I don't okay. know. Let me, me ask me. you. When do you think the first adaptive cruise control system was uh was Ooh. in place or or um demonstrated?
1: Wow. Uh these always end up being earlier than I had anticipated. Okay. Uh, I know that. Um so
0: 1958 I'll... was the first modern cruise, cruise control. control yeah. But
1: adaptive, being able to Yikes. Uh I'm going to embarrass myself no matter what I say. I'm going to say 1995,
0: gosh darn it. You're perfect. Right on. 1995. Wow. Yeah, not bad. So 20 years ago, 19 years ago, Uh Mitsubishi was the first one to develop this adaptive cruise control for a production vehicle. There was no braking as uh-huh. part of the system. It just used, uh, you know, the throttle control and downshifting to mm. kind of adjust the speed accordingly, as you mentioned. But again, it was a very primitive version, not like what we see today in, you know, the, the, uh, Super Cruise system and, right. uh, you know, Audi and all the other manufacturers that are creating really, really advanced systems.
1: Related to this are things like, uh, collision detection and collision prevention systems where, you have to have the same sort of technology to sense that there is a potential oncoming collision. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the implementation for that or the, the reaction of that may be something as simple as an alert in the car so that you as the driver have to react mm-hmm. and thus make sure you prevent uh, a collision. Or it may be something as, uh, as sophisticated as a braking system that initiates automatically to help you avoid a, a collision. Because as we under, as we all know, Human reaction time is, uh, a, is not immediate, mm-hmm. right? And, sure. and electronics can react. In a fraction of a second.
0: Exactly right. And we see this in a lot of different manufacturer systems right now. In fact, a lot of commercials on television right now mm-hmm. show you exactly that happening. Yeah. And of course, the Mercedes system that we talked about, you know, the, whether you have to have the hands on the wheel, mm-hmm. that system uses something like this. It can slow the vehicle. Mm-hmm. I believe the Super Cruise system will completely stop the vehicle if necessary, which Interesting. is, that's pretty unusual. I mean, yeah. that's not, uh, that's not the case in every situation. So all of this relies on just so where you kind of get this out there all of this relies on electronic systems working together in the car which wasn't possible before when it was just a mechanical system right so you know you have to have electronic throttle control you mm-hmm. have to have electronic brakes you have to have um you know for the lane departure warning systems and stuff like, i'm sorry not for that one but um for um electronic stability control you have to have an uh, electronic systems that can control each other can talk to each other yeah. and decide what's necessary at that exact moment and do it without driver input
1: Right yeah it's none of us want to have big robotic arms coming out of the dashboard and holding the steering wheel or or robotic feet that press the 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 pedals down that that is not really a, an ideal implementation
0: of the robot car. Okay. You're, you're making fun of that. I understand. I, I, I know what you're saying that, you know, that sounds funny that, uh, that it would happen that way, yeah. but I've got this article here and I, okay. this is the one that I kind of wanted to, uh, to share and I think it's a good time. All right. This is less than 20 years ago for this article. And when we were first talking about this, this idea for this show, uh-huh. I mentioned that I had been to, um, the automated durability test track in Chelsea, Michigan for Chrysler. Yes. And, this was a system – it's a very uh, primitive-looking back system, but it was so advanced at the time. Mm-hmm. I just can't tell you how cool this thing was. But they actually used robots that they would load into the driver's seat to drive these vehicles on this automated durability system test track. So what they would do is they would test vehicles on this track in kind of an advanced way in that they would um, – An accelerated way is maybe a better way to say it, because X number of miles on this track equaled X number of miles in the real world.
1: So the conditions on the track were so extreme as to be equal to a number of regular miles in the real world.
0: Yes. So they would test like the new Jeep Grand Cherokee there. And they would really, really punish it more so than than they could on a a track with a, a real driver because The real driver just simply couldn't take sitting in the seat Mm -hmm. for 100,000 miles. But they could put 1,000 miles on this track, and I'm just going to give these numbers for an example. They could do it 1,000 miles on this track, and that equaled 100,000 miles in the real world, or what a driver could take, a human driver. So they would load these robots in, and it had, you know, I think the whole track was only like 1.3 miles around, and it was like a a $10 million uh, four-year thing to build, and it had wiring in in the ground, you know, like there were pucks that were buried in the pavement Uh and uh there was a controller that was in kind of like a almost like an aircraft controller tower yeah and he would watch everything that's going on in a very um you know an old style looking system you know to to monitor everything that's happening and they could bring vehicles in for service or just let them run all day whatever Mm -hmm. they had to you know had to have happen but it it cost so much money to do this and the infrastructure that was required just for that that 1.3 miles in 1995 yeah that's amazing because it's still, that was only 19 years ago. It wasn't that long ago, really. Yeah, when you yeah, look yeah. back, it's just incredible. But the, the other one thing that I need to point out here is in reading this article, in addition to just that, that strange, you know, situation, I guess, I read about a test that happened in 1997 with, uh, with Buick.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now GM has been, um, on the, uh, autonomous vehicle thing for a long, long time since the 1920s, as right. we heard, right? Yeah. All right. So in 1997, Two automated buses, an automated police car, and 10 1997 Buick Sabres were cruising driverless up and down a 7.6-mile two-lane stretch of I-15 in San Diego. And I had no idea until yeah, I read this article, right? That's incredible. The test, I mean, they had to bury high-strength magnets in the pavement every 3 to 10 feet in order to make this work. Wow. In addition to a, you know, again you said a, a truckload of of equipment in the yeah, vehicles, right? Yeah. These were, uh, you know, no small no small feat I guess for them to to load this stuff into the vehicle. Each car carried about $100,000 worth of equipment in 1997. In order to make this work. And it was just a short one time thing. But it's another one of those things like we we think in about 10 years, you know, this may be the way we do things.
1: When you look at at what is required to lay out that infrastructure, I mean, let alone like let's say that we've already developed the technology that would allow us to have the smart highway approach. When you look at just installing that, mm-hmm. it's such an enormous this is this goes back to something that we covered on tech stuff before. And and Scott, you and I have talked about it just in the in the office That solar highway idea Mm -hmm. that the idea sounds kind of interesting. But then when you start to really think about the implementation, you realize it's such a monumental, gargantuan task that would cost billions of dollars that it's not it doesn't seem realistic. Same sort of thing with these smart highways. The idea is amazing. But when you look at the. Choosing the alternative of putting all the systems in the car as opposed to in the road, it just seems to make more sense.
0: Yeah, it sure does. Yeah. So these, these systems have advanced so much now that that's why we're seeing this rapid increase, this, uh, the sharp curve. Yeah. To, uh, to think, people thinking that maybe this is possible. Yeah. I mean, before, I mean, look at how cumbersome this whole thing was mm-hmm. just 15 years ago, 20 years ago. It was, it was almost the same as it was in 1920. Yeah. And we're seeing since, you know, the Google car in, in 2009, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, this is maybe something that's really possible. I mean, that, that this is a self-sufficient system. This yeah. is one that, uh, you know, is self-contained. Maybe that's a better way to say it.
1: Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean that we won't see cars in the future communicate with each other. But in the past, we used to think that that was the only way that this system would work, right? Like, let's say, uh, a, you're looking at the, the highway of tomorrow. And all the cars are are constantly in communication with each other to maintain the correct distance from one another to funnel traffic appropriately so that you don't have these traffic snarls or at least they don't last as long. Mm-hmm. That you could even have cars, more cars on the highway because you could pack them in closer together because now that they're all talking to each other and they're all uh, uh, electronically controlled, they can react in a real time where they don't need the, the you don't need to build in the human reaction time. To have a safe driving experience, you just have to have the robotic reaction time, which is much shorter. That's like the, the crazy idea of the future. As it turns out, we might be able to do that without having the cars talk to each other or the roads at all. If the, if each car's system is sophisticated enough, it can all be autonomous and self-contained. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, but I expect we'll have a combination of the two because I think we'll eventually get to really complex systems where things like traffic lights will respond in dynamic changing conditions. So let's say that the traffic system itself is able to sense where congestion is and react in real time, not not on a intersection by intersection basis, but on a system wide basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the dream of the future is that you get in your car, it drives you to work and you don't hit a single red
0: light the entire time. That's a big dream <laughs> you know what Audi is making that work right now and that's really part of what's going on with this Audi connect system that they've got uh-huh. and, and it's probably one of the vehicles that you saw at CES yeah uh, there's two things that I want to mention here now you you talked about the uh, the traffic lights and we'll talk about that first I guess okay one of the things that we talked about in uh, a car stuff episode about um, I think it was just kind of my car detect the lights gonna when the lights going to turn green something like that right mm. I can't remember the episode name now <laughs> but the Audi vehicle will uh, will sense it, it it kind of it ties itself into the central computer that operates the 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 lights for the entire city. Wow! I don't know if you knew that or not. There's, no, I didn't know. Yeah, that. there's one system that operates the lights in in most big cities. Right. And sometimes, you know, in the case of like New York, when there's thousands and thousands of lights, mm-hmm. it's broken up into different groups or different divisions. Different they're not all controlled by yeah. one. Sometimes it's it's controlled individually at that intersection, and that actually causes problems. Mm. Now, if they're controlled by one central system it allows traffic to flow much easier and much better. Mm -hmm. But Audi has found a way to tap into that system legally. They've allowed them to do that, you Mm -hmm. know, as part of the testing. Uh, But your car will either speed up or slow down, to allow you to make that next light. Now it won't go to extremes. It won't slow you down to five miles per hour in in a zone where it's thirty five.
1: Right, and it well, won't accelerate to some crazy speed and and, and thus
0: break all laws. Precisely, <laughs> but it will tell you if you're going to make that next light or not, and what you should do. You know, slightly let off the gas, and you're going to make it to that next light through through the next light. Yeah. Um, or you may not have a chance. Just don't worry about it. You're going to sit here for a minute. Not a right. Big, not a big right. deal. Yeah. But they said that, and what's interesting is that you think. Something like that, you're going to have to have 100 percent, you know, everybody's going to have to be on board with this to make it work.
1: Right? right. Otherwise, if you if you only have one or two drivers on this, it doesn't make any difference. Everybody else is still going to make the system so congested that
0: even for those two drivers, it's not really going to work. Exactly right. Well, the, the surprising thing was that they said that the numbers of, of cars that have to have the system in place in order to make it work is very, very low. And I thought it was somewhere around. I want to say 10%. That is incredible. It's something like that. It's it's in that neighborhood of 10%. So, you know, that's not such a difficult target to meet, really. I mean, Mm -hmm. around here, I mean, there's a lot of Audi drivers, a lot of people driving new Audis. Yeah. I could see this working in Atlanta. I know other parts of the world where, you know, that's maybe not the popular brand or whatever, but if the system works its way into other vehicles, other manufacturers, and and they're able to tie into the system as well, that might be something that really, really helps traffic congestion. Yeah. And the other thing that I wanted to talk about, because Audi's big into this, Uh really big into this. They had at CES, they had a demonstration of a self-parking car.
1: Yes. Self-parking is one of those things I definitely wanted to talk about, because this is something that we're starting to see in various vehicles, things that like parallel parking assist. But Mm -hmm. now we're getting to the point
0: where the car itself can totally take over. Yeah, this is interesting, because imagine this. You go to the mall, and it's Christmas time. Ugh. and you know how it's you know it's i'm like already a, stressing out you yeah, had to search for a parking spot yeah, right up right. and down the rows you're yeah. following people to their parking spot right. you feel a little creepy right yeah yeah, yeah. all right so people are shaking
1: their heads because all they want to do is put some bags in the trunk <laughs> and they're going to go right back inside yeah,
0: is, it, is it worth it to pay the 75 dollars to valet park my car at the mall or whatever <laughs> it is because it seems like 75 yeah all right so you drive up to the, per- the curb and you and uh, you get out and you just let the car go and park itself in the parking lot. That's incredible. And it goes in and parks. It shuts itself off, waits for you to come back and call it. And it you know, you call it. Yeah. Because re-
1: otherwise, the journey of trying to figure out where yeah. your
0: car parked would be very adventurous. It'd <laughs> be pretty difficult. Yeah. So the car comes back to you and picks you up on the curbside and you leave. And it's that simple. Now, I was wondering, okay, I was thinking about this. What if there's no parking spots? Does mm-hmm. it just circle the entire time that you're gone? That would be a drag. Yeah. But the other thing is that there does have to be some infrastructure in place for this to work. This mm-hmm. this system right now, the way it works, uh, the parking lot has to be wired for something like this to work. Right now, I think in the future they're saying, as you know, as always, in ten years we may see this.
1: Yeah, where yeah, we might even see it where the car is able to do it all without the infrastructure being necessary. But it's not a surprise to me to see this kind of this kind of progression where you have the the. You know, you've you've kind of rigged the game, right? Yeah, you've rigged the game by defining what the playing board is Mm -hmm. and then your piece can move along the playing board in a very predictable way because you've defined the playing board. Eventually, the pieces get sophisticated enough that you could play on any surface and you're fine. Same sort of thing is the the idea of the early autonomous cars really heavily depended upon a system that they could uh, communicate with in order for them to operate. But now we're getting to a point where they can do so all on their own. I think the same thing is going to be true for the self-parking
0: systems in the future. Well, think about this. All right. So Audi offers this system as Mm -hmm. an option. Yeah. Right. Let's just say that they do in 10 years from now. And it's uh, it's $1,000 or $1,500 to add this system to your vehicle. Are you going to add that option? You're going to check that little box because there's that one parking lot in Cleveland where it's going to work.
1: Yeah. You might want to wait until that technology is to completely self-contained
0: <laughs> all right that's a that's a little bit uh you know extreme i guess but uh, but audi is so on board with this i mean there really mm. are running gangbusters towards this autonomous vehicle mm. i mean in 2010 they ran a car up pike's peak i don't know if a lot of techno, tech stuff listeners are going to know that or not car stuff listeners do yeah uh, we've talked about it but in 2010 Audi ran an autonomous TTS up Pikes Peak, the uh, the International Hill Climb competition course. Mm-hmm. I think it's something like 144 turns. Wow, 12 and a half miles. It's uh, you know 14,000 feet in the air. It did it in like 27 minutes, which is not a great time. To, granted, you know the the fastest drivers do it in 10 minutes, mm-hmm. but it's pretty amazing. They didn't have anybody behind the wheel. Yeah, I mean, there's a thousand foot cliff on one side, and the other side is you know Rocky Death the other way as well. Right. Um. That's a little extreme. Maybe I should have said that. But anyways, <laughs> they, they chose the TTS because it has the, the, the pieces in place, and, and it makes perfect sense. It has mm-hmm. the the you know the, uh, the drive-by wire throttle. It has adaptive cruise control. It has semi, a semi-automatic gearbox, which is another one we haven't really talked about, and lots of other electronic gadgetry like GPS that can track this vehicle within two centimeters. That's incredible, too. Two centimeters.
1: I remember when GPS was uh, such that the military required all uh consumer level gps receivers to only be uh accurate to maybe 50 feet <laughs> uh and then eventually during the clinton administration that got lifted so that we could have more accurate GPS receivers, mm-hmm. but it, it was the domain of the military until and then I time. think it
0: went down to like 10 feet and then it went down to three feet. And right. I don't know what it is now, but I mean, to track a vehicle Yeah,
1: now you get like a note on your on your watch saying, take a step to your left because, you know, you're about to step in a crack or something. So <laughs> like, it's amazing. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, this is amazing stuff. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. I mean, ju- we haven't really even talked about like lane correction where it takes over the steering for you and mm-hmm. helps adjust you back into the. The middle of the lane. You could even have, uh, uh, you can even have cars that keep you in the center of the lane. And Mm -hmm. so you feel a little tugging at your steering wheel when you start to drift out of that center.
0: Oh, Mercedes does that now. Oh, get this. Mercedes, the Mercedes vehicle, I just read this. If another vehicle enters your lane, so they're, they're drifting, your car reacts to it. So
1: your car starts to move
0: out of the way. Your car will react appropriately to get out of the way of the other vehicle that gets in your lane. So it's not just monitoring what it's doing. It's monitoring what other cars are doing and taking an evasive action. When, when we say react appropriately, does it also call
1: the driver bad names or <laughs> that's, honk the horn? That's or? not appropriate. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, you know. I just I, I only repeat what I see in, in traffic, Scott. I, <laughs> it I'm, flips I'm a the, non-driver. It so. flips
0: the electronic bird.
1: That's right. So, uh you know, there's, again, there's so much more we could talk about. But in order to uh, wrap this episode up, I have to ask you, Scott, an important question. OK. My important question is, what is your personal feeling About autonomous cars. Oh, this is. You're the car guy.
0: All right. So, uh, this has changed. My opinion has changed over the last couple of years because when I first started here, Uh we were still in, you know, talking about the, uh, you know, the infrastructure systems. Right. That everybody had to be on board or else it wasn't going to happen. Right. And, you know, that was completely different from the way it is now. The stuff that I'm seeing coming out now, I'm starting to buy into it a little bit. Wow. don't tell Ben. No, I won't. No, maybe I should. I'll probably talk with him about this soon. But, uh, but this is really the first I've dug into it in a while. And honestly, some of the systems that I'm that I'm learning about and the way that they operate, mm-hmm. I think that's okay. I like the the semi-control type stuff. I don't think I'll ever want to completely hand over control, like you know the the Google car that you're mentioning, right? With no steering wheel and no brake, etc. Yeah, I don't like that idea one bit. Right. What I do feel that I'm okay with is that in certain situations, in certain conditions, if you give over, I guess, um, partial control mm-hmm. to systems. I'm fine with that. I mean, I understand that, you know, for safety reasons, that's fine. It can think faster than I can think or react faster than I can. Mm-hmm. But I'm still, I'm still one in the, uh, in the realm of, I, I'd like to maintain control of the car myself.
1: Well, and you enjoy driving too, right? I mean, I, to I you, it. driving is a, a pleasure activity. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously not like stop and go traffic in Atlanta yeah, on no. highways, but driving is a pleasure activity. And I think for a lot of people, that's true. And it also represents a sense of, of independence and freedom. The fact that you can get up and go to a destination on on your own, and it very much uh, feeds into sort of the American identity, you know. And there are some places in the world where this is not as big a deal, but for us, it's huge. This, this is really ties into our national identity. Huge expression
0: of freedom. Yeah. And and the thing is, you know, I, I need to clarify this. I'm talking about like my daily driver. Sure. Now, if I were to have a car that was like a weekend car, a project car, um, you'd want that full
1: manual. Control. I would want.
0: I would want the just. No electronics in that thing at all, if yeah. possible. I mean, yeah. just to be a raw experience. And, yeah. and I like that a lot. I really do. And so I think that, you know, the, I've got two different ways to look at it. But sure. for the daily driver, yeah, sure. If I'm, if it's going to help me in traffic and stop and go every day, because I sit in it for an hour and a half every day right. each way yeah. to get to this office. Um, Well, good news, Scott, because you're sitting here with me so late. There's not going to be any traffic when you're heading home tonight. (laughs) It is good news. So what about you? I mean, we haven't really talked about your thoughts
1: on this. You're not a driver. I'm not a driver. So I am 100% on board with the autonomous car experience.
0: All right. I understand that. I get that. But let's just say that, you know, you've got some confidence in the person that's driving you, right? So you you have people that, you know, drive you here and there, wherever you need to go. Your your wife drives, right? Yes, she does. No secret there. Nope. Now, would you be comfortable with her handing over control to the computers to let them drive you wherever you're going?
1: I would be. Uh, my wife, I, let me say this first. My wife is an excellent driver. Uh, I make was, a lot of, I make a lot of jokes at my wife's expense, uh, which she humors good naturedly, but I have to say she, she was late getting into driving as well. Mm-hmm. She was not one of those people who at age 16 got her driver's license. She, she was a late comer to driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she is an excellent driver. Uh, however, I think she does, she's also, she doesn't enjoy driving. Mm-hmm. She does it and she's very good at it, but it's not an experience that she looks forward to. So I, I think she would enjoy being able to hand over control too. I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. I mean, I really do. There, there are uh, plenty of people who absolutely love it and there are plenty of people who are like, this is a utilitarian task that I do. It it gets me to where I need to be, and that's all it is. It also I think heavily depends upon the the house you grew up in, the way the way the people around you looked at driving, because my parents both don't really care about driving either. It is the way they get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And so I think I inherited a lot of that from them. Um, I also just I, I also know a lot about how uh, the humans have the limitations, right? We, we do have limitations in our reaction time and our ability to make decisions in critical moments. And, uh, even when you make that decision, then there's the delay between making the decision and acting upon it. And it seems difficult to believe that machines can do this better than we can, but you see it all the time. I mean, the, the fact that, uh, that Machines are communicating electronically. That means you're they're using electricity, which moves at the speed of light. You are not getting faster than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you once you figure that out and you get to the point where the system itself is pr- it's proven to be reliable, which is obviously key. If you have a poorly designed system, this could be a disaster. Right. A poorly designed autonomous car could cost lives. But assuming that it has been quality tested to, you know, to the ends of the earth and back to prove that it in fact is able to do what it promises to do, then I welcome it with open arms.
0: And even so, GM legal may still tell you that you have to have your hands on the wheel.
1: Yeah, which means I'm out, right? Yeah. I, I'd still have to go get a driver's <laughs>
0: license to sit in my driverless car. You know what may be my favorite part of that whole uh, that whole uh, paragraph that you just stated? There? Yeah. When you called us the humans. The humans, Yeah. yeah. You often refer to us as the humans. It almost
1: had me. I realized after I said it, I thought, now it sounds like I'm talking about a a species to which I do not belong. (laughs) But I do. I'm not an alien or a robot. Sure
0: you're not. No. Hey,
1: come on, man. I don't need to be like calling in my backup squad so I can wipe out everyone's memory. Plus, I can always edit this podcast and cut that part out if I really wanted to. What is that access
0: panel on the back of your head?
1: Look, we don't talk about my – It's it's just a tattoo. That's all it is. It's a
0: tattoo. <laughs> Very clever.
1: Scott, thank you so much for being on this show. This was a lot of fun to have this conversation.
0: It was a lot of fun. And I'll tell you, I've got, um, I'm staring at five pages of notes that we didn't even get to yeah, in you, this conversation. You
1: threw away about, about six pages of notes after you got finished with them. Yeah. So we've got enough here where we could do another episode if we wanted well, to. Well, let
0: me tell you, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be here. So thanks for asking me. Absolutely. And of course you can listen to Scott and Ben
1: on Car Stuff, an amazing podcast. Uh, and, uh, and Scott, I hope you are able to do an episode about autonomous cars and drop the bomb on Ben early in the episode because I want to see him react when you say, I'm on board with some of these technologies.
0: Yeah, some of them. I yeah. mean, let's, uh, let's keep it uh, in mind that it's some, not yeah, all. I'm yeah. Not, uh, I'm not completely swayed yet.
1: It's the assist that you're looking at, not the. I'm going to completely
0: take over this, this experience. As I get older, I'm okay with a little bit of assistance. That's all.
1: Yeah. No, I, I can use all the assistance I can get
0: <laughs> in, yeah, in let, driving and everything else. <laughs> let, let the jokes fly from this. Yeah. Well, on. you know,
1: I welcome them. And hey, if you guys have jokes for me or you have suggestions for future episodes of tech stuff, maybe there's another How Stuff Works host that you would absolutely love to have back on the show or someone who's never been on before. Let me know. Uh, you guys may be better begging for Scott to come back, please let me know. I'll be happy to pass those messages along as well. You can get in touch with me with the email address techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr with the handle h s w, and I'll talk to you again really soon.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.